Welcome to Three Panel Contrast, the podcast that puts certain academic minds and certain comics classics into conversation with others. Today we'll be discussing Andrew McLean's Apocalypto Girl in contrast with Noel Stevenson's Nimona. The connective tissue here is works of speculative fiction that feature a young female protagonist. As we'll discuss, science fiction has a tendency to look toward the future and see that the rights of women haven't actually advanced very far, if at all. Fantasy can fulfill our wildest imaginings, which often seem to feature regressive gender portrayals. We'll talk about that. Also, shark boobs. Additionally, we'll feature a review of Ursula Le Guin's landmark essay, American SF and the Other. And away we go. joining us. I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann from University of Waterloo, St. Jerome's campus. I'm Dr. Anna Bapard. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at Brock University. Dr. Michael Hancock of the University of Waterloo. Uh, so to start us out today, Anna's going to give us an introduction to Apocalypto Girl. Apocalypto Girl, an area for the end times, um, written and drawn by Andrew McLean, is the story of Aria, a girl alone at the end of the world, or more accurately, a world. And it isn't really the end. Aria's optimism amid tragedy and violence make it clear that all endings are also beginnings. On the world where Aria is stranded, succulent fruit trees bloom amid ruined buildings and shattered robots, and even the bombs that once threatened to destroy the world have given birth to beautiful, life-giving lakes. And most of the time, Aria doesn't seem particularly lonely. She's got her cat, Jelly Beans, and the opera she sings to herself, and usually that's enough to make her laugh. None of which is to suggest that Aria and Jelly Bean's life in the aftermath of an apocalypse is easy. Aria wages gruesome, if reluctant, battles against the world's surviving native peoples and does want to return home. She's a transplant on the world where she's stranded, investigating the planet's power and people on behalf of a space-faring race that's revealed in the comic's final pages. Aria sometimes rages against the violence and isolation she's stranded within, but never forgets to stop and appreciate the beauty that survives this end of the world. Told in flatly applied, rich colors, thick lines, and relatively little dialogue, Apocalyptic Girl is a deceptively complex story starring a female protagonist who's strong not because she can shoot space guns like a badass, though she can do that, both on and off the back of her equally badass motorcycle. But what really makes Aria strong is her complex feelings about shooting those guns, which are bound up in her unique view of the world at the end that's really just another beginning. This unique view of the world is brought to vibrant life by McLean's stylized renderings of both peace and chaos, and frequently peace within chaos. This is a different type of apocalypse story starring a different type of protagonist than we generally see in those types of stories, and I look forward to talking with the both of you about some of those differences today. Thank you, Anne. Uh, and now Michael will walk us through Nimona. Noelle Stevenson's graphic novel Nimona begins with a scenario that could have come out of nearly any superhero title. The titular Nimona proposes to become the sidekick of supervillain Ballister Blackheart, adding her shape-shifting strength to his scientific know-how. However, most superhero titles would then be about Blackheart's nemesis, the suggestively named Ambrosius Goldenloin. While Goldenloin, and I'm going to be using that name as often as possible, <laughs> is certainly a participant in the events that follow, the main action and emotional arcs are closely centered on Blackheart and Nimona, a direction that is pretty much made clear by the fact that the book's named after her. Blackheart is simultaneously repulsed and intrigued by Nimona's more brash approach to supervillainly. Uh, quote, there are rules, Nimona, he tells her primly, moments after detailing his plan to kidnap the king and hold him for ransom. As he becomes increasingly won over by her approach, the two grow closer as friends as well, 
and a highlight of the book is the way that it juxtaposes action sequences with moments of quiet mundanity. However, Blackheart's suspicions regarding Nimona's origins escalate along with the attention they receive from Goldenloin and the director of the institution, the governing body that acts as power behind the throne and places a normalizing gaze on its subject, uh, Nimona included. Torn between love and the law on one side and his loyalty towards his friend on the other, Blackheart is forced to confront two questions. Who is Nimona? And in relation to the ideals she holds and represents, who is he? Uh, Nimona the text occupies an interesting place in the larger career of its creator, Noelle Stevenson. It's certainly successful in its own right. As a webcomic turned graphic novel, it's won awards, including the 2012 Slate Award for Best Webcomic and a 2015 Eisner for Best Graphic Album reprint, and it was a finalist for the 2015 National Book Award. As a quick aside, it may say something about the audience and media hierarchy that exists that only the finalist is mentioned on the book's cover. However, at the moment, Nimona is somewhat overshadowed by Stevenson's other work, including her work as a writer on the series Lumberjanes, but most notably her television work, as a writer for the Disney cartoon Wander Over Yonder, and a showrunner for the Netflix series She-Ra. I, I say at the moment here because that may all change in 2021 when the Disney film adaptation of Nimona is scheduled to be released. It's tempting to read Nimona as a lens for Stevenson's other projects, and I'm totally down for doing that at some point during the next hour. But it is also indicative of how comfortable Stevenson is in working with a variety of media, adapting her deconstruction of superheroes and villains to webcomic, book, and television. I'd also commend her for bringing a measure of queer subversiveness to genres and media that tend to be, well, very, very straight-laced, pun intended. While Nimona is indicative of Stevenson's visual and narrative style, and perhaps uh, indicative of greater trends in storytelling and entertainment media, it also stands on its own as a comic filled with compelling characters, good humor, and moral complexity. Um, so I mentioned in my introduction, and maybe it's a good place to start, uh, that there's this real problem in fantasy and science fiction in terms of these um, conspicuous absences of female characters. Uh, in both these instances, we've got works of speculative fiction that, with really no explanation whatsoever, uh, no, no gesturing towards this problematic past tradition, we have female protagonists carrying these books to some degree. So my question to you is, um, how well do they work in this regard, and to what extent do you see gender politics as playing a role within these respective narratives? Uh, and maybe we can start with Nimona, Michael. We'll start with Anna. <laughs> well, that's such a big question. Well, I feel like... Uh... Okay, well, it's very unusual to have a female character at the center of an apocalypse story. Mm -hmm. Often things within the sort of apocalypse genre are sort of male fantasies about kind of primal masculinity becoming important again right. after the end of civilization, and that's kind of what makes those stories kind of creepy because it's kind of a fantasy of everybody dying so that you become important, yep. <laughs> which is like creepy as hell. I am not sure that Apocalyptic Girl completely like reverses that fantasy. <sighs> the thing I'm a little bit distrustful with about it is that I do see this quite a lot where there's almost an assumption that by inserting sort of a female character or a person of color into a traditionally male role that that automatically mm -hmm. subverts something. Right. So I'm sometimes a little bit distrustful of that. I do think there's a little bit of that going on here. Mm -hmm. There's just sort of an understanding that a female character can embody different things and you can kind of exploit a female character for that reason and they're almost automatically more sympathetic just because they're female. Mm -hmm. 
that's not McLean's fault or anything that he does. I'm, I think that he does a very good job with this character in the way that he tells the story. I mean, it's a, we don't know a lot about her as a character, and he's able to convey a lot with what, you know, we do have. I mean, like I said, I like that sort of balance of her being a character who's capable of great violence, but is trying to resist that violence, a character who's frustrated, who's not perfect, and yet has like a very mm, appealing hopefulness to her. I'm not sure if I'm really getting at sort of the answer to your question. That's such a big question. I think you are, and it's a horrible question with like being in the age of comics gate and all that kind of thing. I guess my question is to sort of take like the, the MRA perspective here. Mm -hmm. Do you see our character here as a political statement for being gendered, or is that really not important to this story at all? Is, is McLean kind of putting a spotlight on the character's gender, or is this just kind of an element that we shouldn't think too much about, almost like a post-feminist portrayal? I think it's leaning more towards post-feminism than feminism, in the sense that I don't think it's trying to make the gender a big deal in the comic, and yet it's inescapably, you know, present. I mean, I, I don't, right. I, I I don't, I'm not one of these people that looks toward it being some wonderful future where gender is not a meaningful aspect of stories. If anything, I want to see it being a more meaningful aspect of all types of stories, and that mm -hmm. includes masculinity being an important aspect of stories. I like when male superheroes deal with kind of those issues in their stories, and I would like to see more of that rather than just have everybody not talk about gender. Mm -hmm. um, it seems to be like the group or race of people or whatever that she belongs to female-led, possibly. Yeah. It's very unclear. We don't know about. Yeah, but, I mean, they certainly have a, we, we a certainly, kind of feminine style. Yeah, we don't see any male presenting yeah. from that. Yeah. Likewise, we don't see any uh, female yeah. presenting people who yeah. are native to the planet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But then I, I feel like I have some questions about race and stuff, so to caught up in that in terms yeah. of the representation yeah. of the indigenous <laughs> people in this comic that I sort of want to talk about, too. I mean, I guess maybe the lesson there is that making your character female doesn't erase those political problems with this genre. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a really cool element because, I mean, I think we often talk about um, um, otherness, or at least historically we've talked about otherness. I know that's not a popular word these days in post-colonial studies, but we've historically talked about it as being innately patriarchal. Mm -hmm. So even when you're talking about these relationships between um, racial groups, there's still a patriarchal component to it. I don't know how deep a dive we want to take into this. Um, Michael, what are you seeing uh, along these same sort of lines in Nimona? I mean, we're talking about a fantasy text written in 2012 originally, I think, was when this started. And by that point, I think a lot of Nimona caters to a young adult tradition as far as fantasy goes, and that's has a pretty established history of female protagonists. Mm -hmm. At least by this point in history, it would have a very, it would have a much more straightforward gender reading, if the director character had also been male, because then you'd have like a pretty firm, oh, the institution is the patriarchy. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's still very, few, there's very few characters in Nimona, like not as few as uh, Apocalyptic Girl, but you could pare this down to four main characters, and that would be pretty accurate. Mm -hmm. And we still don't get that much of a director. My lens for this leans more towards queer theory, I think. Right. That this is very much about agencies that try to fit Nimona under certain categories of being. And she keeps pushing up against yeah. that. And is a shapeshifter. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah. like shapeshifter is <laughs> not a subtle metaphor for that kind of thing. But right. I mean, it's very. this comes to a head that she is divided into a little girl and a dragon. Uh, this is how... 
uh, Ambrosius in particular sees her, that she's either this threat that needs to be exterminated or this little girl who can be dismissed. Mm-hmm. And uh, a part of the book, I think, is Blackheart having to come to terms with the, his approach is really supporting the system. Mm-hmm. Whereas Nimona represents what happens if we actually do some resistance. Uh, Ambrosius is, um, um, like Nimona, he's, he's the one who's going to be associated with what we might call um, feminine qualities. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, where Nimona, as a character, seems to largely reject feminine qualities, Ambrosius is um, ridiculed for having them. How does that fit into what Stevenson is kind of playing with here and that dynamic in terms of the gender commentary? Because as you said, it intersects with the, the queering of this. Yeah, system. well... Well, that's such a... Can I just... It's just ahead. that's such a weird and interesting question because I totally know what you mean. But, I mean, one of the things that I do really like about Nimona is that I'm just like, yeah, that was exactly me as a young girl. It's just it's not usually represented that way. Yeah. Like, there's nothing unfeminine about Nimona. I mean, I was exactly like that and I'm super fan. But, like, I don't know. It just we just don't see women represented that way. No, not at all. Uh, again, it, it's addressing an absence, yeah. I think, and maybe again specifically a genre absence. But we could also talk about it in terms of a comics absence. It's just funny how like she's this like queer shapeshifter, like otherworldly character, and I'm like, yeah, she's just so much more like a regular human girl that I mm. know from my own experience. Yeah, yeah. Than, like... yeah. <laughs> we talked about Calvin and Hobbes on the mm-hmm. podcast, and, and the kind of like universal identification we get with that character mm-hmm. i feel the same way about nimona like she just reads as familiar mm-hmm. in, in a really kind of interesting way what we do have is a pretty clear uh homosexual relationship between ambrosius and oh i'm sorry golden line <laughs> and blackheart and you open this question with a look at uh ambrosius's masculinity i think it's very telling that there is no traditionally masculine character in this book hmm. uh, a very deliberate choice on uh, stevenson's part and one that i think gets reflected in the other works that she's been on as well i've got a question related to golden line the black heart relationship do you think it's more effective or less effective to have it introduced within the text that like their presumably homosexual relationship is disapproved of by the society because the director brings up that she disapproves of it and i'm like I feel like I'm 50-50 on like whether it would have been more effective and more subversive to just have it not that aspect of the relationship not actually be like, societally condemned. Yeah, like I mean the condemned part of it is that one's a hero and one's a villain, not that they're gay. I think one of the things I find really interesting is the But then it could get lost if you uh, the duel that they have between yeah. other characters that it's Sir Coriander can cadaverish and mansley girthrod which suggests to me that this is part of the institution branding their names mm-hmm. that the institution is using the fact that you've got this supervillain who works within the rules yeah, yeah. and this opposition with right. a heavily masculinized uh hero and that's and i i think you can read something there about the traditional relationship between superheroes and supervillains. But I guess, yeah, I don't know, that's still, I feel like that just makes me more undecided about that question, though, because I'm like, if the society is exploiting that traditional relationship as part of their sort of, you know, veneration of their heroes, then why would they be against that component of the relationship? Well, we know she's against that component yeah. of the relationship. Do I guess, we have? I guess so, yeah. And she's against it because she can't control it. That's true. That's true. 
I also like the reading of the text as they can't be together, not because of, again, as you said, societal function, but because Golden Wine was jealous of Blackheart. Yeah. I, uh, yeah I don't know. It's a much more kind of um, personal and intimate um, obstacle, I guess. Yeah, I, I almost wish that, but again, I, I do wonder if it would have felt a bit too queer baby without bringing it more obviously to the forefront. Mm-hmm. To an institution. Sure. My interpretation is that it's another tool the institution can use. Yeah. That, like, you're, you have this illicit relationship and I can control you through it in a different way. Hmm. I guess maybe it's just that the world that it creates has such a, you know, queer freedom to it that having that prejudice introduced found felt jarring mm-hmm. to me and I didn't like that intrusion of reality. Would you have liked it if it was sooner in the text? No. Well, it happens. <laughs> it wouldn't have made a difference. So, elegantly segue... Um, there's a really cool, powerful, intimate relationship in Apocalyptic Girl as well. Yes. But, but this one is between a girl and her cat, Yeah. Uh, which is, again, incredibly atypical. How well do you think that works as a substitution for a normal romantic relationship that we you would see? You girls fantasizing about having sex relationships with their cat is atypical? <laughs> Maybe not in contemporary society. I feel like I was talking about girls and horses on a previous podcast as well, <laughs> oh. but... Um... Well, like, I, yeah. if you present a main character who's like, the only thing I really care about in the world is, is my cat, and I'm like, I can relate to this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people can relate to that. But um, I'm glad that I wasn't the only one that saw that as being. <laughs> the scene where she is sort of undressing, and it's their anniversary, and the cat, like, licks her hair, and yeah. then you, you get just the shot of her feet, so you're not sure what's happening. I thought that that was very sexual, but I'm always not sure if I'm reading too much into these things. I think the only thing, the only problem I kind of have with it is that it makes the ending ring a little less true for me, that Mm. I didn't see that she had such a great connection to this planet that she wants, that she would, like, yeah, yeah, her, save the planet. Hmm. Because my my cat and I had good times there. Yeah, it seems like she just... If she has the cat with her, then... The reason for that doesn't seem as evident. And, you know, I can be the person that always boringly brings up <laughs> the Catholic problems of bestiality in terms of, is the cat giving consent? We don't really know. <laughs> it's such a boring problem, but still. Well, do you read that relationship with the cat, the way it shapes up in this text, as ironic at all? Yeah. Or are you fully on board in the climax when you're like, yes, please save Jelly Bean? Uh, or, or is it kind well, of comical that she's struggling to rescue her cat i mean i I resent it going to that well of emotion a little bit because that's so easy oh my god there's an adorable pet in danger and i'm like come on i feel so manipulated by that (laughs) and it is a little bit like a cheat like i have been on this planet for six years but the extraction's in 15 minutes (laughs) yeah We should just talk about the end. Yeah. Well, because it's tough because I just, I I didn't like it as a payoff for the story that had been built. I thought that the the texture of the world and, you know, was really interesting up until that point. And then I just, it raised so many questions. It feels like another level of distancing from her. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, she's part of this, like, racer group of people that, like, come down in this big pyramid in their white outfits and they're just making decisions about which Earths live or die. And mm-hmm. that, like, all the issues I had with her character are magnified by that revelation. Right. It's a, it, and it turns the whole story into a very, like, 
tired colonialist trope that we know how to use this better than the natives Mm -hmm. so we are justified in doing whatever it takes to take it from them and i just don't understand whether i was supposed to think that was good or not and i get that you could just be like well it's not good or bad i'm like well yeah that's kind of a cop-out though well you had mentioned that structurally you thought maybe the apocalyptic girl ending was kind of rushed um is that a product of that maybe because i kind of agree like it feels like he needed to tie this thing off fast. Yeah. So he's just trying to slap on a quick resolution in a way that wasn't, again, natural with what the rest of the story Well, built. the part is there's a problem with the apocalypse genre, though, I think, too. I mean, it's such a, like, it's such a deeply politically problematic genre with such a, like, long and dense history that to do such a short intervention, mm-hmm. you just, you have to be so thoughtful with, like, what the politics that you're deploying there are. And, I mean... If we get to talking about, yeah, like the indigenous representation, I mean, you know, like uh, the people she's fighting are like blue and brown. They like sort of fit in with indigenous tropes and sort of in terms mm-hmm. of being like inscrutable others that, you know, she finds very separate from her own humanity, which is clothed in white. Right. Yeah, and, uh, how long has she been on the planet? Like six years yeah, at least? Yeah. She has picked up none of the language yeah she just says it's but she seems to know their history yeah like i just i don't know what i'm supposed to make of that yeah if apocalyptic girls a colonial fantasy then nimona is a medieval fantasy Hmm. um how does it engage with those politics in a similar or different way well this is a that i think leads to a question that i'm not sure of the answer of that why does nimona have this sci-fi medieval mix and Mm -hmm. i've taught this text in a course and we've talked about i've talked about this with my students and one of the answers we came to is that it highlight one of the things that you get from the medieval setting is the knight squire relationship and you get the idea of good versus evil binary transposed into a more modern setting it gives you the juxtaposition that you can have this medieval knights but also you can have board game knight Mm-hmm. And I think in a way, it you could make the argument that it uh, highlights how superhero comics do the same thing. That superhero comics are a science fantasy mix, but we're so normalized to it that we don't see it that way. Whereas if you make the contrast much more stark, like this does, then it becomes a little more clear. I think part of it, too, that I read that mix is just like, it's part of that queerness. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. I don't give a fuck about your genre, like, yes, I'm just going to pick whatever genres I want because that's fun. And, like, yeah. it's sort of a rebellion against that, like, you know, nerd gatekeeping, you know? That, like, <laughs> I'm just going to do what I want and I don't have to fit specifically yeah. into the genre or do this the way that you want to do it and stuff. And that's part of the joy of it. Yes. Like, it is a very, like, celebratory fuck you kind of text, <laughs> like, in the best way. <laughs> So as Michael had already mentioned, um, Nimona started out as a webcomic, and you can see that so clearly on the first few pages uh, of the graphic novel, and then it evolved into something else entirely. Uh, so you've got a text that is changing in terms of its structure, versus McLean, who is you know clearly writing one thing, kind of one structurally oriented style. Um, my question is to both of you, just in terms of the value of that in contrast. Um, to what extent does having Stevenson figure out what she's writing as she's writing it 
impact the object that we're holding versus what we see in McLean, which is more, again, um, kind of preconceived. And is there an advantage to, um, for lack of a better term, figuring it out as you go? How do you react to that in these two texts? Um, I think there's definitely a sense in uh, Nimona that as it goes on, uh, Stevenson gets a little more of a grasp on the larger ideas that she wants to tackle. And this is something you see in a lot of webcomics. They start off with the core idea, but very gag-oriented. Um, I'm mm-hmm. thinking of things like Order of the Stick, or I wanted to mention this at some point, uh, Strong Female Protagonist by by Brandon Mulligan, and uh, actually Stevenson's fiance, uh, Molly Osterberg. Uh, and both of these series like have that kind of evolution to it. I think it's something that rewards long-time audiences, but can be kind of jarring when you're reading it all in one go or at a really extended rate. What about you, Anna? How do you feel about completeness versus incompleteness when, when you hold the text? Well, I, I feel like I was saying earlier that I... I... With Namon, I, I almost wish it had just stayed like those like gaggish vignettes. I sort of <laughs> like just those like short dives into that world. Because I mean, that feels almost like, you know, I was talking about fucking with genre earlier. I mean, that, that feels like, you know, fucking with structure, you know? Yeah. It doesn't have to be this cohesive narrative. We can just dip in and have like little jokes. And I, I sort of almost, almost like that better, even though I really admire the story it ends up telling. But I just still sort of feel like it ended up being more conventional than it started out being. Mm. And like, <laughs> she's shown to have like really like a lack of morals, which is very dangerous <laughs> and everything. Like, she's not allowed to just get away with her immorality. Like, the consequences of it are shown. And, you know, some of, you know, her psychology is shown in ways that sort of complicate her character. I, I think they make it very clear that she's a character who's looking for something to care about, yeah. which differentiates her from area of it yeah yeah hmm. who seems to have sort of this set of beliefs that exceed the situation she's in but yeah. what those beliefs are are very much never made clear yeah she's got as you said the power and the position to judge mm-hmm. uh, and, and that's her role in this narrative whereas Nimona doesn't have that same level of agency she's subjected to a lot of other people's um, attempts to use her power or and, I mean she does come in you know being judgmental but is opened up to judgment sort yeah. of mm-hmm. over the course I of mean, the narrative. I could see a story where that, I mean, it's a pretty common comics trope that some sort of superpowered cosmic judge comes in and yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to evaluate humanity. Usually we get that from a superhero perspective or a humanity perspective. Conceptually, it would be interesting to see that from the yeah. other perspective, but if I think you need to play that up more to make that interesting. Yeah. Well, maybe just directly relating that to, to McLean, do you think the ending is a deus ex machina? Oh, yeah. Or is that a simplistic yeah. interpretation? Well, I mean, yeah, but it's also, I guess it's very unclear whether this is just the kind of thing that she encounters just regularly and it just happened to be this day that she, well, I guess maybe what you're kind of asking is like, is it intentionally that or is it... Mm. Yeah, again, coming back to the problems with the ending, it is one of the problems I mean, that it's forced for yeah well, I, guess, I guess maybe i'm like is it is it like intentionally like just ironic that well it's sort of i mean yeah you, you've got the point where the mech the one mechs come in mm-hmm. and it's like oh she can't outgun something mm-hmm. and then we get 
like the pyramid arrives and oh no the ones have been outgunned there's some things in that final battle too that are like i just thought were like a little bit muddy because she like is fighting in the body of the gus robot and then gets into the other one somehow but like off panel so we don't know how that happened and if we, if we want to talk if we, if we want to get more into the like bestiality sexual part of this there's some sexualization of that mech too yeah mm-hmm. yeah which again like are interesting potential components of it and yet that's something that we've seen in like a lot of you know oh, apocalypse or just isolation stories I mean, you know, and it's a common beach ball or whatever common right? mech but, approach to yeah, it. Yeah. like yeah <laughs> Well, girls and robots would be like, yeah, girls and cats, girls and horses, girls and robots. All sorts of new podcast topics. Girls and Wolverines. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about the relationship between um, Blackheart and Nimona? Well, what's your take on that? How, how do you read that? What sort of emotions is it is it pushing us towards? Because it is a little bit mm-hmm. um, paternal, cliche uh, yeah. in some ways. Like we've seen this a lot. Yeah. Uh, a strong yeah. male character who takes on the young female ward. Um, but here we have a bit of a different dynamic. What do you think Stevenson's doing with that? Um, I think I'm pausing a little bit here to reflect on our <laughs> comparisons. Like, I guess a typical comic book one would be the Wolverine Kitty Pride kind of thing. I think a big difference is the power levels there. That right. There's a little bit in their relationship about... I mean, it shows how Blackheart thinks of himself as this outsider, but it's revealed that he is a part of the system, that the system has compensated for him and uses him. Yeah. And Nimona is an actual destabilizing presence. And I think a lot of the series is him coming to terms with that. And, and through her power is able to actually, as yeah. earlier, to stabilize the system. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the push and pull of their relationship subverts the way that kind of relationship often goes. I mean, he's neither a mentor to her nor is she a savior to him. Right. Right. It's, it's hard to point to anything like, what did Nimona learn from Blackheart? Yeah. <laughs> but like what Blackheart learned from Nimona is pretty clear. Yeah, but then at the same time, he has to, like, rein her in sometimes. Yeah. So, like, it is a push and pull. It doesn't go sort of in one direction or the other. Yeah. Like, it's just one of these things where it's just, like, Apocalyptic Girl is the more obvious, like, artsy indie comic thing, and yet I kind of think Nimona is smarter. <laughs> See, my X-Men inflected brain has a hard time not reading Nimona in the context of like a Dark Phoenix saga mm-hmm. and that handling of, again, gendered politics, the idea of um, repressed or controlled feminine power yeah. and the insecurities it creates. Okay. Um, but I don't know that that's actually there. Well, I mean, yeah, what do you do with that when the director is in charge of everything and is also female? Yeah. And Nimona is so celebrated for her like destabilizing power too. As much as it's shown mm-hmm. to like be a threat, it's like clear that the reader is supposed to like enjoy it. Yeah, right. that's like the driving humorous thing of the comic. I mean, it's called Nimona. Yeah, and maybe that's again established in the sort of webcomic structure that, that initiates it. I mean, maybe it's funny that she kills people. I mean, you were talking about how does this deviate from the norm? Well, the norm is she gets to be the hero and live. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, she gets to be both bad and the hero and yeah. Live. Well, she gets to sort of have all of the things. But yeah. That's the chaotic force doesn't. The chaotic female force doesn't have to die. Yeah. Right. And it's celebrated, like in terms of again her being. It, it's not like it's celebrated on the narrative level, but it's celebrated. I don't know, like on the extra narrative level of us like getting the most enjoyment from her as a character. Yeah. Because, you know, she's not condemned because we as the reader are supposed to like her even when she's doing these horrible violent things because it's, you know, it's a very, again, like it's got that suspended reality so like, you know, 
you can enjoy the humor of that a little bit more than in, in a more, I don't know what, a more grounded in reality type of comic. Does it escape the paternal relationship, though? Because there is a scene of him literally it, holding child Nimona I don't think it arms. totally escapes it. No. But I mean, does it need to? Might be the other question, too. That, that was going to be my follow-up question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's telling that the only other relationship that gets framed as something that Nimona has experienced is that she, at some point she had parents that abandoned her and Blackheart kind of abandons her. Yeah. Uh, but then, of course, goes back to her. But, I mean, going back to her is also saving After, everyone. Yeah, but like at the end of the day, he saves the boyfriend first. Like, I mean, it ends with them less connected. Yeah. That he doesn't know... He Like, Blackheart is very clear. I don't know if I'll ever see her again. Right. Or at least we'll ever have a relationship again. I think, um, at least from his text, he says that he would like that equal relationship. Whether that's possible or not is a different question. Acknowledging the impossibility of having a definably human friendship or relationship with a creature who might not be human, though, is like mm-hmm. a respect for otherness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, acknowledging that she is different and in order to be who he would want her to be, she would have to give up that difference. You know, letting her keep her difference is sort of important. You know, she can't exist in that same world, and that's like good acknowledgement of her subjectivity. I don't know. Maybe him showing a form of respect for her. Yeah, 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 that's sort of what I was trying to get at. Yeah. A form of respect for her difference that he's not making her sort of conform. I mean, I'm thinking back to like I Kill Giants or something. I could totally mm-hmm. see a different ending for this comic where it'd be like, yeah. oh, the dragon was the bad presence that was possessing her, and yeah. we got rid of that <laughs> presence, and she's just free to be a nice little girl. And we, and we can raise her. Like <laughs> She's got two daddies now. Yeah. Like you can totally I've seen that, that fan art. And like I really hope that's not what the Disney movie does. But yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I like that she you know, ends the comic being like an unknowable, possibly unstable, not really possibly amoral force. Well, I mean, and like doesn't get rehabilitated. I guess that's the downside of a chaotic energy. Yes, she gets to live at the end. But once you build the new society, is there a place for it? Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that um, Stevenson is dangling that kind of boring, normal ending in front of you? Like, is she playing off of it and trying to make you want it and then subverting? I think so. I I think so, too. Really quick question. Is there anything to Ambrosius's character other than his relationship to Blackheart? Anything to actually like? <laughs> he's a mimbo. Yeah. He's a lovable mimbo. I've got I like his insecurity, though. Yeah. <laughs> the way that he feels that insecurity towards Blackheart. I find yeah. that interesting. Yeah. Again, it's potentially the thing that, that kept them apart. I don't know. I loved him so much. <laughs> I, I giggle every time Michael says Golden Boy. <laughs> it's a good name. Well, I lo- yeah, I love the idea that we're going to be really overt <laughs> about how hyper-masculine our superheroes are, even when they're very uh, not hyper-masculine. Yeah. But it is a nice critique, too, of how that, that yeah. Prince Charming ideal is very fat, and how society has never had a problem with that seeming contradiction of the values that we, we usually espouse, right? In terms of a heteronormative gaze. I'm saying weird, stupid intellectual words at this time. a little bit about the visual style that we see in each of these respective texts, which is very distinctive, I would say, in both cases, and maybe, again, even a little atypical for what we expect from these genres. Um, Anna, you had mentioned that you think Maclean's um, visual artistry is um, particularly strong. What do you like about it? Well, I do think 
think that the art does perhaps a bit better job than the story of balancing kind of, you know, peace and chaos, I suggested in the, in, in the introduction, but also, you know, like the beauty and violence, but also like <laughs> the gruesomeness that sort of exists simultaneously. Like I had a bit open to the fight scene in the subway train when the um, blue stripes attack her and she's shooting at them and you have this freeze frame of these kind of, you know, egg-shaped modular bullets, whatever she's firing from her gun, sort of frozen in time, and they're like ripping through bodies and you see splashes of blood and it's it's horrifying almost because the art has such an innocence to it. It is such a very like cartoony style and then it's got those flat colors. I mean it's very like the influences all are all over, but I mean it's like manga it's like european sci-fi comics but it's a very sort of like clean innocent style but you know with with hard edges as well that i i like the tension that's established there i again i I certainly like that like tension between sort of you know violence and beauty and the way it kind of makes you think about that tension just by aestheticizing violence but the violence is sometimes more gruesome in this comic because of its innocence. Yeah, the, like, that contrast or juxtaposition yeah, effect. Because I don't think it shies away from the gruesomeness and the consequences of violence despite the way that it aestheticizes it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one of the real strengths of the art. I mean, it's a very difficult balance to get because we've talked about violence on the pod before and how you know, extremely aestheticized violence can be a little bit dangerous. And we talked about that in particular in terms of Saga and whether we thought that violence was presented as too beautiful and without consequences in Saga. And here I think it's very beautiful yet with consequences, you know? Like mm-hmm. it has sort of still images of, you know, a landscape or sort of the damaged robot, which are very sort of idyllic, but then it also has idyllic scenes of like these dogs with their heads chopped off, flying in their own blood, but then we'll do things where it draws attention to that tension by having, you know, the cat puts its like paw in the blood and raises it up and just again, you get in images like that that juxtaposition of the gruesomeness and the innocence. I find yeah. that very effective. And uh, you mentioned the Saya comparison. I think yeah. there's some resonance with the other pairing we had for that episode too, Extremity. Oh, yeah, uh, that, yeah, you yeah, know, post-apocalypse female with yeah. lots of violence. Yeah, but yeah, I, I did find the violence sort of more ethical here again than in Extremity though too, where it was the aestheticized in such a gory way that was like indulging mm. in the gore you yeah. know but i think it's it's the juxtapositions that you get here between sort of the tranquility and the violence and the bleed between those th- two things but those mm-hmm. sort of estranging moments like with the cat dipping its right. foot in the blood right where you have like this dead animal and a very cute alive yeah. animal and like the confrontation with the blood and you get that tension kind of playing out quite effectively what do you think of the visual style of Nimona, Michael, other than they're, they're really long and slender? As I've probably declared too many times over the series of this podcast, I often feel I don't have the vocabulary to go over the no, visuals no, as well. I think, especially the earlier comics, palette-wise, it's a little muddy, a little brown. Yeah. Uh, I think she does some more experimenting with colors as it goes on. Things get very green. I I think she makes a lot of good use out of Nimona's shape-shifting abilities to have a a lot of visual fun with dinosaurs and Mm -hmm. going big and going small. And I think we get a lot of Nimona's hairstyles, which which I like. Uh, And it compares well with the other characters who are pretty static visually. 
uh, that Nimona is constantly changing and they're kind of stuck. Yeah, I mean, it uses, you know, <laughs> the gaps between panels very effectively there for you mm-hmm. a lot of the time where she's like, Nimona, and then suddenly, I'm a shark, which yes. is like, that's so, I don't, I'm, I'm curious about how that would be in an animated film because it's just so much funnier in a comic. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I should say, going back to Apocalyptic Girl 2, part of how it maintains that tension is through juxtaposition, you know, like there's a lot of use throughout the comic of, you know, like a scene of something violent juxtapose a scene of something peaceful sort of panel to panel or even like, beautiful right yeah exactly and like that's part of how it maintains that tension and it uses color very effectively to that end as well you know moving from like red to yellow to blue that kind of thing Nimona like that really sketchy style you know that she kind mm-hmm. of you know like a Kate Beaton sort of kind of style too that yeah. you know it really helps yeah. with the nature of the humor being very sort of like <laughs> and you know Nimona's character too being sort of like vibrant and unpredictable like that's what that style is you know it has like (laughs) that like feel of amateurness while not being amateur at all Uh, so before we get into our academic review i think i have one final question for the panel um one of the things that stevenson says about her process when she's writing is that she first thinks about what she needed when she was a young girl uh, and I think both of these texts maybe skew a little bit younger in terms of the potential audience that they might mm-hmm. reach. I, I'm not saying they have anything to offer for adults. I, I absolutely think they do. But I think in particular, both writers seem to have either young adults in mind or very specifically young girls. If that's the standard we're holding them to, the, the question becomes, what do these books have to offer that the, the needs of these young audiences uh, or these young girl audiences um, maybe have not been fulfilled elsewhere. Uh, and we can maybe start with Apocalyptic Girl on that. What, what, what does it offer to young female readers? Did you really think that's the audience for it? For Apocalyptic Girl? Yeah. Yeah. Mm, I would have gone no. for 35-year-old men, but I, that's Maybe funny. like mid-20-year-old? No, I would say young adult. Mm. If you look at the level of violence, it's totally consistent with superhero comics aimed for young male boys, right? Yeah, but not... It's just the stylistic influences and stuff I just felt yeah. like were like a little bit skewed older than that to me. I felt like the excess in particular was skewed towards a younger audience. I don't I feel like the excess maybe, but the aestheticization of that excess yeah, that's in not terms of the female audience. Kind of I mean again I said like European sci fi and like manga and like I feel like it's I can see the audience for this being like people who appreciate that on a deeper level than you do. Yeah, the, you know, like, the, the violence is like yeah. a shonen comic. Yeah, but that's that's a younger. Yeah, but not but, in, but very specifically not a younger girl comic. And okay. like in the so American context, to excuse a bit older than in its yeah. native context. Yeah, I don't know. That's just funny. I, I like. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I think that's a fair question. I just it's funny because I didn't. I wouldn't reading this. I wouldn't pin that as the audience for it necessarily like i wouldn't pin young girl audience for it this thing screamed young girls to me when i read it yeah again well i mean you're the one you're the one who's closest to having young girl daughters yeah i know i know so like yeah like maybe that's why you're getting that well yeah and even when it was recommended to me it was this is a comic your daughters will want to read in a few years yeah i don't know i guess maybe i just saw a little bit of it and you know i'm reading this as like 35 year old i mean i'll admit that like like if it was more of the violent gratuity uh she might be dressed differently i'm thinking of like a frank miller approach 
No, that's not a good approach no? to think of. In this what are? I mean, that's the violence level. That's the violence level, but and the beauty and violence. Well, I guess it's just I, I look about at her and she I means she's very much got like you know the Ripley from Alien like kind of influence. Yeah. Yes. She's, like, yeah. Like, that, okay. That in her underwear and her shirt, and if she was drawn differently, works. it could be highly sexualized. But at the way she's drawn, I mean, she's like, I mean, what does she look like, Patty Smith or something? Which again is like sort of an older reference. So I, I can't imagine adult males being interested in a love story between a girl and her cat. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like there are a lot of these little elements to it, and to her character and her motivation. The, 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 the cat thing part, yeah. is the one that I think has the most kind of appeal to the audience you're suggesting. Yeah. But the nature of the story and kind of I just don't because I mean again I was saying like I felt as a female reader very alienated by her not identifiable. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. We we can agree to disagree, but I'm. I still see this as very strongly a, a like. 13 to 17 year old female audience as a 13 year old female girl i would have found it politically problematic okay i would have been like yeah i don't get why she's not helping these people yeah like i would have been i mean are we going for like a hunger games comparison of of their protagonists i don't I don't see uh, maybe with the cat. But female characters are like hyper self aware, yeah. and that's sort of like because it's just oh, yeah, like, yeah. I feel like, like a point of entry for like a young female talking. reader is that you're hyper self aware and being critical of the genre that you're participating in, and I just don't see that as much in Apocalyptic Girl, which is why I don't see it. Yeah, like to that audience. Hunger Games is intensely about the narrator like thinking through her place in society, and this isn't yeah. thinking through their place. No. I don't know if I see that as the appeal of the Hunger Games. Well, not appeal. Not but so, like, yeah, but it's it, it's a it's essential. But like, why? Yeah. It, but is it? I the reason say, that Hunger Games is for young female girls. I would say that's part young of what. Girls. I mean, if you were, <laughs> if we are framing this as the book contains the thing that you need, I think that's part of the appeal to that. Like, right. they are working through these issues too. I don't know if she is working through anything that that audience needs. I think she is. Except the cat thing. No, I, I think the, the question of power and place in the world and the ability yeah. to take joy within the world okay. that she's situated in, to me, that rings as a teenage kind of experience. But It's just, it's, it's, the, it's the consequence-free nature, though, for, for, to me, of the way she interacts with the world. On like the other hand, the consequence-free nature is very teenager. To me, I'll give you that. <laughs> Again, though, like as a 13 year old, as a Star Trek obsessed 13 year old, I would have found it politically yeah. problematic. I would have. Yeah. Uh, I would have been frustrated by that. I would have been like, she needs to help these people. Why is she shooting them? Yeah, no, it's funny. I like. I, I actually like this conversation. Uh-huh. It's just <laughs> yes, really we don't, we're not usually the premise of the question. No, but I mean, it's just really interesting, like the very different reactions yeah. people can have to kind of the same thing. And I mean, we're doing so much like weird essentializing of people like, yeah. in this conversation, which is incredible. Yes. Like, I'm like, well, it wouldn't have appealed to me as a 13-year-old. Therefore, it doesn't appeal to any 13-year-old girls because clearly I represent all of them. And, and listen to me talk about 13 to 17-year-old girls based on this one book I read. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. That's different that we all had such a different response to it. Yeah, I don't know. What about Nimona? I feel like gonna... we might be more on the same page here. That I mean, what it offers is stand up. Don't put yourself into the order that the institution wants you to do. Yeah, right. And you can create that difference. I definitely wish I'd had a book like that when I was a young girl. I would have loved it, I think. And I just can't even imagine having had something like that. I think I've said that before on the pod with some mm-hmm. of the stuff that we've read. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know, just like that freedom to be chaotic and be imperfect. And I mean, even, you know, the way she's represented physically with this kind of like vibrant physicality that's not oh, as much as Sailor Moon has its good aspects, you know, not hypersexualized, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's just not something I saw at that age. And I love it at this age. And I, I think I would have liked it. And it would have been a very positive force in my life if I'd had it at a younger age as well. American SF and the Other is an essay published by legendary science fiction and fantasy author Ursula K. Le Guin in Science Fiction Studies in 1975, and then republished in a collection called Language of the Night in 1979. It's a brief paper, but its influence and effect on our contemporary cultural landscape is rather enormous. I should pause here to add some context and remind any of our listeners from our last episode that Michael read an entire volume on manga essays, any one of which would have to have been longer than this paper. The table of contents for the book from Michael's last academic review was probably longer than this essay. But this is still what I chose for our recording today, as the paper offers us a unique and intelligent vantage point by which we can approach our comics offerings for this episode. Le Guin, the daughter of famed anthropologist Alfred Kroeber, opens with a condemning anthropological observation. Quote, one of the great early socialists said that the status of women in a society is a pretty reliable index of the degree of civilization of that society. If this is true, then the very low status of women in science fiction should make us ponder about whether SF is civilized at all, end quote. For Le Guin, the state of women in science fiction reflects a fundamental contradiction. In a genre that is meant to look toward the future, the politics of gender and SF have only looked towards the past. And SF was, at that time, as it still is now, failing to keep up with contemporary gender politics. She writes, quote, The women's movement has made most of us conscious of the fact that SF has either totally ignored women or presented them as squeaking dolls, subject to instant rape by monsters, or old-made scientists de-sexed by hypertrophy of the intellectual organs, or, at best, loyal little wives or mistresses of accomplished heroes. Male elitism has run rampant in SF, end quote. From there, Le Guin expands her argument, describing the unique capacity for science fiction to use the figure of the alien to address the concept of the other, writing that, quote, The question involved here is the question of the other, the being who is different from yourself. This being can be different from you in its sex, or in its annual income, or in its way of speaking and dressing and doing things, or in the color of its skin, or the number of its legs and heads. In other words, there is the sexual alien, and the social alien, and the cultural alien, and finally the racial alien, end quote. For Le Guin, the fertile ground for discussing the other in science fiction has been squandered by a functional boys club of writers who are far more interested in staging the British colonial empire 2.0 than they are in actually thinking about a future where the status of women, as just one example, has advanced a millimeter, even as our technology has advanced parsecs. Quote, in general, American science fiction has assumed a permanent hierarchy of superiors and inferiors, with rich, ambitious, aggressive males at the top, then a great gap, and then at the bottom the poor, the uneducated, the faceless masses, and all the women. The whole picture is, if I may say so, curiously un-American. It is a perfect baboon patriarchy, with the alpha male on top being respectfully groomed from time to time by his inferiors. Is this speculation? Is this imagination? Is this extrapolation? I call it brainless regressivism. End quote. 
Now, a lot of the time our academic reviews are of recent texts, but this is a very old problem that we're dealing with here, one that I don't believe has been more succinctly articulated by any scholar since Le Guin, and I offer it here in that spirit. At the same time, the ancientness of this text give us, gives us an opportunity to do something we haven't been able to do before. We can look back and see what it accomplished. Le Guin's call to arms, a combination of great theory and great practice, worked. In the 1970s and 1980s, science fiction shed a lot of its patriarchal tendencies and became a highly important site for Western feminist fiction, with the help of authors like Marion Zimmer Bradley, Joanna Russ, and James Tiptree slash Alice Sheldon, to name just a few. As we discuss contemporary comics portrayals of young women, and perhaps for young women, it is worth keeping in mind Le Guin's closing statement. Quote, I think it's time SF writers and their readers stopped daydreaming about a return to the age of Queen Victoria and started thinking about the future. I would like to see the baboon ideal replaced by a little human idealism and some serious consideration of such deeply radical futuristic concepts as liberty, equality, and fraternity. And remember that about 53% of the brotherhood of man is the sisterhood of women. So the last thing that we need to do today is just to say a quick thank you to St. Charles University for equipment and facilities. Um, and um, I actually want to thank uh, Laura Grafton Adams, one of my favorite former students who recommended Apocalyptic Girl to me in Aww. the first place. Uh, and I guess Michael for recommending Nimona when I expressed my like for um, the Shira series as well that my kids were watching. You're welcome. <laughs> so um, we've been doing recommendations. I, I think what I wanted, and I know I, I gave this to you guys in advance, was because of the sort of gleeful nature of these texts, I thought it would be fun for us to recommend comics or comics moments or comics scenes or comics lines or comics images that had like a, like a squee feeling to them. Things that just made you feel a sense of unrepentant joy. Um, uh, and I think maybe Michael can start us out there. Okay, um, I'm going to cheat on a few of these because I'm going to offer two that are not comics and one that is. I mean, the obvious go-to here, it almost goes without saying, but I will say it, Stevenson's She-Ra cartoon reboot, that yeah. it did bring me that moment of joy watching it, and I would wholeheartedly recommend it. Mm -hmm. Second up, a video game. <laughs> uh, this is from a studio called Inkle. It's a game that was released very recently, uh, Heaven's Vault, and it gave me a kind of joy of discovery while I was playing. You play as this a female archaeologist who's going through ruins and deciphering this ancient language. And it strikes me as an interesting reflection of Apocalyptic Girl, that it's not violent in any way, but it's got similar tensions of what to do with the protagonist that's in kind of a colonialist action, but also a little distanced from the cultures around her, and also has a fun robot sidekick. So better than Tomb Raider. Yes. <laughs> I will say that. Uh, last one, the actual comics one. Uh, this one also brings me joy, although I'll say that it's kind of messy. Journey into Mystery featuring Sith. Uh, this is from 2011 to 2013 by Catherine Immonen and uh, Valerio Shaiti. <laughs> and the idea is... This is a Sif who is Sif being uh, the often love interest of Thor, a female lawyer, 
And this is a version of her who can't shake this rage that she's feeling. And I don't think the series comes to a great resolution about that, but I think it's interesting and it has a lot of scenes where she uh, is very close to Beta Ray Bill and that brings me joy. Aww. Well, yeah, on the Catherine Nimmerman note, I, she did a Hellcat series mm-hmm. that I really enjoyed as yeah, well. Yeah, great. That awesome she had message. that exuberance yeah. that I've always really liked Hellcat and I love that mm-hmm. she has that history of being the cat, which was Marvel's first like solo female superhero, and then Patsy Walker gets the costume, integrating their romance and humor. It's like such a great, it's a super super feminist history that like needs to be talked about more. Uh, I am gonna do a couple of somewhat obvious wrecks. I'm gonna wreck, well, in terms of things that brought me joy that I've read recently that reminded me of these texts: Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. Um, by Amy Reader, Brandon Montclair, and Natasha, sorry, I don't want to butcher her name, Natasha Bustos. Probably butchering that, I apologize, Natasha. Um, which just, <laughs> the renderings of the dinosaur in it are just, <laughs> they make me just like squee out loud. I read it at the desk at my old hotel job and just was like, brought me so much joy <laughs> waiting for people to check in at 11 p.m. And also, um, Ryan North and Erica Henderson's Squirrel Girl mm-hmm. because it's also fabulous. One of those, I'm sometimes resistant to picking up these comic books that are like advertised as, as quote unquote all ages, which mm-hmm. both of those are, and I'm all like, ah, it's gonna be too something, which is a silly complaint of mine to have. But if you're looking for more inspiring female characters who do bring you that sense of joy and optimism, I would encourage you to check out both of those. Uh, on that same note, kind of. Um, I'm going to recommend a recent comic uh, by Leah Williams, who's a, a very talented up-and-coming Marvel writer, um, called What If Magic Became the Sorcerer Supreme, mm-hmm. which is, if you're a fan of the character Magic, you know she's been very mishandled since she's been brought back to life and um, sexualized in problematic ways, given the character's backstory, which we actually mm-hmm. talked very briefly about when we did New um, Mutants and Young Avengers. Um, but Williams gives us an alternate ending. Uh, for the magic series that, that gives her resolution and doesn't ignore um, the things that she's a symbol of uh, and kind of brings into a really satisfying ending that, that just um, melts the little tiny heart. Yeah. Uh, and with that, we are done. Our next episode will be dealing with um, Marvel's Annihilation event uh, as well as DC's maybe answer to the Marvel <laughs> Annihilation event, uh, the Sinestro Core War. Uh, And we hope you will join us for that as well.